0: Welcome again to all those who are here, those online, and those listening later this week on this second Sunday of Easter. Our passage this morning helps us explore how are we we to respond to the risen Lord Jesus? How do we live into resurrection life with Jesus? In our passage this morning, the disciples are full circle back to the upper room back to that table where they had celebrated the Last Supper with Jesus. Our passage covers seven days from Sunday night of the resurrection all the way to the second Sunday, the second Sunday where we are today. Please pray with me before we read our second lesson. Dear Lord, may the Holy Spirit fill our hearts and minds this morning as we seek to follow our risen Lord Jesus Christ and as we learn from your holy word, inspire us, guide us, inform us, all for the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So listen to the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 19 to 29. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jewish, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This familiar, beloved passage where the disciples were locked away in fear and Jesus appears. I love it. He breathes the Holy Spirit on them. Don't you love that? I want to experience the breath of the living God absorbed in my very being. What do you think his breath smelled like? (laughs) Mint. But I want us to move into the second week. I want us to focus on that second Sunday, a week after the resurrection. They're gathering again. The disciples are all there, including Thomas this time. You know, these disciples are all from out of town. I believe they had to have been there all week waiting. They didn't just come back on Sunday. I think this passage shows us how Jesus gives us room for doubting and questioning in our journey. There's no shame for the disciples, for Thomas, who's wondering and waiting about what's next. Jesus meets us right where we are, and our experience is unique to each of us. Wouldn't it be great to read all the varied reactions of the 11 remaining disciples? I wonder if some of them are just mute and watching. Not all of them, surely, but I suspect that Thomas's reaction is recorded by John because there will be a lot of people like Thomas, right? Thomas demonstrates self-awareness of rich vulnerability, and he says what he thinks. He's a helpful friend to us. We're people who say what we think. Thomas is the guy who asks the questions everyone wants to know. We all had a friend like that in school, right? Ask the teacher this. But Thomas is also the guy who goes all in regarding his commitment to Jesus. You know, he gets known as the doubter, but he's more than that. When Jesus was planning to go to Bethany, where his detractors were threatening Jesus with death, with stoning, the other disciples were nervous, but what did Thomas say? Let us also go so that we may die with Jesus. So he was committed. And we've heard from Thomas before in the Gospel of John in another setting. Before Jesus was arrested and crucified, Jesus was with his disciples, encouraging them and comforting them. He knew it was ahead. He knew they were going to be separated and he wanted to assure them that the plan was to be reunited in his father's house. You probably remember Jesus says to the disciples in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And it was Thomas who said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And what did Jesus say to him? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus asks, so Thomas asks Jesus these how questions, the logistical questions. How do we know where to go? What's next? On Resurrection Sunday, Thomas asks the other disciples, how will we know Jesus' resurrection is real if we don't examine his healed wounds, if I don't examine them? Jesus asks Thomas asks the how questions and nothing's wrong with that. It's part of how we're wired as humans. God made us that way. When we look at the world, we seek rationale. We can't help but look for patterns. We find shapes in clouds. We find patterns of faces in inanimate objects. We can't help but look for patterns. And if we've learned about a topic, a scientific discipline or an art, some area of inquiry, it seems like we want to apply these interpretive tools to all the important things in our life. We seek to find patterns. And for many people, they say God engages them in their study, whether they're mathematicians and artists, scientists, horticulturists, they see the hand of the creator as they explore the complexity of the world from their discipline, using their knowledge and reasoning. Because one tool that we all develop as we grow into mature adulthood, or at least we should, are reasoning skills. But reasoning doesn't always answer those key questions about God. You know, Thomas asks those logistical questions, questions about how. But Jesus answers with relational questions. He answers with who. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, peace be with you, here I am. We may seek to know how things work, but is that really our inner yearning? Think about it. What is your inner yearning? Your inner yearning is to know love and to be known. That is what it is to be human, to belong, to have meaning. These are relational things. So how do we perceive these things? How do we perceive belonging and love? The 17th century mathematician philosopher... And theologian Pascal said, it's the heart which perceives God and not reason. That is what faith is, God perceived by our heart, not by our reason. He was French, doesn't he look cool? He was a 17th century mathematician, and this was interesting to me. When I was in graduate business school, I really connected with probability and game theory and process management and the predictive power of statistics developed by Pascal. He is the father of modern statistics. And then to my great surprise, later when I was in seminary, I discovered Pascal was actually a theologian too. They didn't mention that part of the University of Chicago Business School, maybe next door in the Divinity School. He was this mathematician who defined probability and measurement, and yet and yet he was a theologian too, and he carried a piece of paper sewn in his coat. It was a reminder of the transcendent experience of God. This really moved me. This is what it said. It was in French, I'm gonna read it in English. It said, Memorial, the year of grace, 1654. Monday, the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight. Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, feeling, joy, and peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you but I have known you joy 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 tears of joy I have departed from him they have forsaken me the fount of living water my God will you leave me let me not be separated from you this is eternal life that they know you the one true God and the one you sent Jesus Christ Jesus Christ Jesus Christ oh I left him I fled him renounced him let me not be separated from him He's only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel, total and sweet. Complete submission to Jesus, my Lord and my director, eternally in joy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. Pascal carried these words as a reminder of his heart burning with God's love. He kept these words sewn into his cloak, removed from cloak to cloak as the cloaks wore out. So when it comes to meaning in our lives, when it comes to answering the question about why we exist and what our meaning is, we're wired to give and receive love that can only be perceived in our heart. What and who we love forms us and makes us and makes our lives meaningful. We know this, that infants and small children are formed by their loving attachment to adults who love them. And this continues throughout our lives. It continues even as we seek to know God's love. So how do we learn of this love? The Bible tells us about why we exist and the meaning of our lives as humans, to be beloved children of God. But we have to understand the Bible from the lens of love. The Bible doesn't hold up as a book of certain rules for only rational thinkers. I have a friend from a much more conservative evangelical tradition who would play, give me a question, and the Bible answers it with young people. He's someone who really loves Jesus, and he thinks that this certainty is helpful. He views the Bible like this handyman tool, an everything tool. You know these. The idea is that within a moment of opening the Bible, if you were learned You could find a tool that could be used to answer any question or to argue doubt out of your heart and mind. But does it work this way? No. Yes, there is good guidance for living in the Bible, but there's also a lot of Holy Spirit discernment and a fair amount of freedom in our lives following Jesus. So why doesn't the multi-tool approach work? It's because the Bible is more of a love letter than a multi-tool. Let me repeat that. The Bible is more of a love letter than a multitude to master the problems or hammer down doubt. The Bible isn't documentary history or scientific treatise. It's not intended to explain the age of the earth or dinosaurs. It is about love. It is about our relationship with God. You know, it's said that the truest thing about you is what and who you love. Isn't that correct? The truest thing about you is what and who you love. So I wonder, how many of you have seen the Oscar award-winning movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once? Anyone? It's hard to describe the movie, and I'm sorry for the spoiler alert, but, you know, too bad. It's about a mother and daughter who have the ability to jump into multi-universes, multiverses. They discover that anything and everything is possible without limits, and what they discover is that if everything is possible, then nothing matters. They're filled with nihilism and despair, and conflict with each other threatens all of the universes. Eventually, mother and daughter, Evelyn and Joy, they jump to a universe where there are two gray rocks in a dry desert landscape. It's inhospitable to living. Evelyn and Joy here have their first proper conversation in the film, to the point that both rocks even start laughing together at the place they find themselves. So if you see a meme around that says, be a rock, that's what this is about. Because the one universe where they experience the most peace is one full of limits, where they are rocks. And they appreciate and experience connection, joy, and love. And they discover that love and kindness is all that matters in every universe. So friends, it's an interesting movie, but just a warning, it's R-rated. So this is how I imagine every possible universe belongs to Jesus, the one God of creation, united in love, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we're invited into that universe of love. We can embrace that love, and we can also explore the world at the same time. We can use the tool of our good minds. Our minds are gifts that help us navigate the world. They help us perceive God's creation. We're given the blessing of this physical world, and we should explore it, But we also need to remember that we're liminal beings who can't capture the full understanding over all the world and the universe. We can't. You know, science doesn't disprove faith, but instead it answers different questions. Questions that might be important to to you. I don't dismiss them. But no matter how you research, there there will be an end to our human understanding. We shouldn't be fearful of scientific inquiry. It won't disprove God. You know, Pastor Dave frequently says, Jesus meets us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He said that recently, and it made me remember one of my favorite books about spiritual formation and growth. The authors wrote about this idea of a wall of doubt as a gift to us. It doesn't sound like a gift, but it's a catalyst for growth. It's the idea that doubt and struggles mark stages of growth, and they're part of God's design. This idea has been really helpful to me in my own struggles and growth, because sometimes doubt feels like a wall. We can encounter that wall through loss or grief or just for yearning for a more real sense of God. It's called The Critical Journey by Janet Hagberg and Robert Gerlick. And this is what they say about the wall of doubt. The wall is a dark and sacred place filled with God. We learn how to embrace our pain, how to stay with it, and we learn what it is trying to teach us. And further, they write, if we do the soul work that this darkness calls us to, we will not recognize ourselves on the other side of the wall, even though we may outwardly look the same, as we did before we entered the wall, our insides have changed. So walls, the upper room where Thomas and the disciples were waiting for a week, they were surrounded by walls and the door was closed. Jesus comes through the walls for the disciples in that upper room and for us too, inviting us to move out. It's an invitation to open the door to your longing, being vulnerable and releasing control because these are the steps necessary for receiving love. Love always comes with vulnerability. Jesus says to Thomas, do not doubt but believe. And I think that that English translation doesn't capture the fullness of the invitation, the movement of the invitation. It's an invitation to join a journey translated exactly if a bit kind of woodenly this reads stop becoming unbelieving and get on with becoming believing friends we want to be people who are becoming believing it is a journey jesus will be in every part of that journey and jesus invites us to respond jesus invites us to know him and his love through his words to touch him and absorb him through communion the bread and cup, to experience him through the waters of baptism. Jesus invites us to know him through sharing life with other beloved siblings in Christ, in the serving of other people who God loves. He loves all people. Yes, Jesus is present in the mechanics and details of the world. The mechanics of the world, though, won't definitively prove God's existence to you. They won't disprove God's existence to you either, but God's existence will be proven to you in your heart. God, Jesus is the most present in the doubting and the yearning of our hearts. Jesus is in the walls that hem us in. Jesus is in every part of our journey. So friends, let's be people who are becoming, believing, moving forward, receiving the love of our Lord, our risen Lord Jesus Christ.